The scripture for today is from John 16, 5 through 16, page 751 of your pew Bible. I'll give you just a second so you can read along with me. Catch me on any mistakes I make. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. Amen. So it's always good to be here. I like uh, that Pastor Chris is quote-unquote moving slowly this morning, because we all know that moving slowly for Pastor Chris is really normal speed for all of us, um, myself included. Uh, so I will be with you as your normal speed uh, stand-in for Chris. Thank you for letting me uh, pitch it for you this morning. I'm excited to be here. It's always good to be with you all um, looking out. And um, just a little warning, a little bit later, I'm going to be asking for three brave folks to come up out of the pews and join us up here. But to start off, the Franciscan priest and uh, theologian Richard Rohr said something very interesting I ran across lately. He said, this generation of Christians, us, might be the generation most uniquely positioned to understand the mystery of the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like no other generation before because we have telescopes and we have microscopes. So what do telescopes and microscopes have to do with the Trinity? What does our ability with very, very powerful microscopes to look into the depths of the universe and with telescopes and with microscopes to look into the very minutia of the universe have anything to do at all with the nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, telescopes. So 
it turns out that scientists are of, in somewhat of agreement that billions of years ago there was a massive explosion. And that explosion led to what we now call our universe. And that explosion hasn't ended, it's still ongoing. And as far as people who look through these telescopes into the depths of space can tell, our universe is expanding and growing by the moment. Those brave souls who've tried to kind of measure how big this explosion is at the moment, many of them believe it's, it's infinite, so there is no measurement to be made. But those who say, I think we can kind of see out this far, guess that maybe our universe is 90 billion trillion miles across. And like I said, and growing. And in those 90 billion trillion miles of space, most of which looks like empty space, there are actually billions of galaxies also moving further and further apart from each other. And in those billions of galaxies, all of that empty space is actually not so empty at all. It's filled with things that scientists now call black holes and dark matter and dark energy. And in this gigantic, vast universe, really 96% of it or so, as they guess, is made up of this non-stuff stuff. And really only a teeny tiny percentage, maybe 4% or less, is actually stuff that we would call stuff, like stars and planets and moons and comets and asteroids and gas. And in all of that tiny 4% of stuff is our little teeny tiny Milky Way our galaxy. And if we wanted to travel from one side of the Milky Way to the other, it would take us 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light. That's how big it is. And within our Milky Way is our home. Centering around the sun, the solar system, is our little Earth. Our Earth, they say, they estimate, weighs six billion trillion tons. It's traveling around the sun at a rate of 66,000 miles per hour. It takes 365 days to make a journey all the way around the sun. And then the Earth is rotating on its axis at around 1,000 miles an hour, taking 24 hours to make a complete rotation that we call a day. No wonder we feel dizzy sometimes. <laughs> If we step outside at night and we look up at the stars, the light coming to our eyes from the stars, scientists say, could have left that star millions or even billions of years ago. If we step outside in the daytime on a sunny day like today, our closest star, the sun, which is 93 million miles away from us, light falls on us from the sun that left eight minutes ago. And so we make calendars and watches and clocks and have this sense of time all based on the movements of these massive objects separated by enormous, vast spaces of space. And nothing is standing still. Everything is moving. As far as the universe is concerned, there is no up, down, right, left, top, or bottom. It's just one big, massive, 
But everything, no matter how far things are separated from each other in this massive thing called the universe, every object exists in relationship to the other objects. In fact, it's a giant web of sorts held together by forces and gravitational pulls so that everything stays in its place. Planets orbit, moons orbit planets, things don't crash into each other. It's all held into place by this massive field of relational energy. And then there's microscopes. Not too long ago, in the 1800s, with very powerful microscopes, scientists found what they thought was the basic building block of the universe, which was the atom. And back when we went to school, most of us, the atom was conceived to look something like this. If you stacked a million of these teeny tiny atoms next to each other, they would barely be the same width of one human hair. And this, in this traditional view of the atom that many of us might have made in science class with styrofoam balls and wires going around, there was this idea that everything was orderly and in a place and an orbit and predictable and very static almost, very static and, and fixed. But then, more recently, scientists invented these massive particle accelerators one of them, the longest one in the world, is a 17-mile-long circular hallway, if you will. And in it, they put atomic particles, and at incredibly high speeds, they crashed them into each other, and they found out, lo and behold, that the atom is not the smallest particle. It's not the building block of the universe. In fact, atoms are made of smaller particles, called subatomic particles, and subatomic particles are made of smaller particles, and so on, and so on, and so on. And it turns out that one of these particles recently became very famous, the Higgs boson particle, because scientists believe when they found it twice, which is enough to confirm for them that it might exist, that it might have been the particle that acted as kind of the fuse or the catalyst that set off the whole explosion that is the Big Bang. So as of today's date, there are 150 or so and growing named and identified subatomic particles, bosons, gluons, quarks. Sounds like Star Trek. <laughs> and in this developing idea of the atom, they've almost thrown away that earlier model and instead have moved to a model that looks more like this. There's a cloud of particles, and these particles are moving in somewhat unpredictable, unexpected ways. In fact, scientists have trouble picking out where certain particles will disappear and reappear. And they found all kinds of strange things about these particles that make up the universe, including the most strange one of all, I think, is that if you put two particles near each other, let's say these two particles are in New York, and they're near each other, they will vibrate together. They will vibrate in unison. They will become a couple, as it were. And then if you separate these two particles, an invisible umbilical cord, if you will, forms between them, 
and say you keep one particle in New York and you take the other particle to California, and you do something to the particle in New York and make it vibrate differently, instantaneously and simultaneously, the particle all the way in California will also do exactly the same. There's a connectional, relational fabric to the universe. Yet, within this cloud, even though it looks like there's a lot of stuff going on there, that's just representing all the places a particle might appear, all of these atoms and subatomic particles are actually 99.9% .9 empty space. The stuff in them that moves around is extremely small, and they're moving around in, in a cloud that is mostly empty. So just bringing this down to kind of you and I here right now in the church, so it turns out these pews we're sitting on, we usually think of them as solid and they're made of atoms that are maybe kind of like bricks stacked upon each other, when in fact, subatomic particle scientists tell us that what we're sitting on are actually collections of atoms and subatomic particles all being held together in this relationship of energy and they're all mostly empty space. Yet it feels solid. And we feel like we're being held up by it, and we are. But in fact, we are sitting on an endless collection of moving energy working together in a perfectly choreographed dance, if you will, that is coming together to form a pew. And so it turns out that energy and what we call matter, you know, things and non-things, are actually more similar than they are different. And somebody really famous named Einstein talked about this with the famous equation, E energy equals mc squared, matter. That there's a unique interchangeability between energy and matter. So that's all well and good, but what about us? Then there's us. So each of us started as one little teeny tiny cell. And that cell split and divided, became two cells, and so on, and so on, and so on, until by the time we were born, we were a gathering, a collection of 10,000 trillion cells. Every single cell in our body has a complete genetic code. Every single cell in our body knows exactly what job to do without being told what job to do. And it kind of knows about all the jobs all the other cells are doing. Each cell is only about 20 microns wide, which is two hundredths of a millimeter. And every cell in our body lives and dies and respirates and functions all while we're sitting here just thinking about lunch. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, the cells that we come in contact most, the cells of our skin, are dead. Um, any one of us as an adult, we're carrying around about five pounds of dead skin cells. Gross. And we shed off about a billion dead skin cells every day. Kind of makes you want to vacuum more. <laughs> Most of our cells in our body only live one month, and then they die. That's their whole life cycle, and they're replaced by a fresh new, brand new cell. 
except the cells in our liver live about five years, and then they die and are replaced. And the cells in our brain, actually, not such good news. We get a lot. We get about 100 billion brain cells when we're born, but that's all. We don't get any more, and brain cells don't split and divide and reproduce. Brain cells live, and then they die. And we lose some every day, whether we're trying to or not. And then we have things that we can do that make ourselves lose brain cells faster, some on purpose and some accidental. Um, but the individual brain cells that we have at birth are the ones that we will have with us when we take our last breath. The components of the cells are renewed and regenerated, but the cells themselves are the ones we carry with us through our whole life. But with that, on the whole, that means that all of us, every cell in our body, is renewed to a degree, with the exception of the liver and brain, on a monthly basis. And biologists tell us that there is not a single part of you that is here with you today that was with you nine years ago. Because of this constant regeneration of who we are, you are a you, all the components of you, that did not exist nine years ago. Which again says this relationship between matter and not matter maybe is a little bit different than we think. Because I'm guessing you still feel like you, and most of us remember what was going on nine years ago, although that's questionable. So maybe we are more than just matter. Maybe there's some part of us that endures, that's bigger and beyond and deeper and more transcendent than just ourselves. And then we can't forget that our cells are just made up of atoms, which are made up of smaller atoms, which are made up of smaller atoms, which are made up of smaller atoms, which are made up of 99.9% .9 empty space. So we, just like the pews, are a unique creation, an ensemble, of, if you will, of these clouds of relational energy that we call us. It turns out we ourselves exist in this relational, connectional way of being. Which brings us to our text. So, Jesus is in this John chapter 16, in the upper room with his disciples. It's called the upper room discourse. And he has been talking to them about what's going to happen next, his upcoming denial, his betrayal, that he is going to go away, that he's not going to leave them as orphans. He has washed their feet. We assume that they have celebrated the Passover together. And he has talked to them about this interesting dynamic between himself, his father, and the counselor, or the Holy Spirit. And he has told the disciples, which you wonder what they made of it at the time, is that he was going back to his father, and the father and he were going to send the Spirit. And that they would the disciples would experience this ongoing, living, connectional relationship to Jesus, just like they had had with him while he was here during his earthly ministry, 
They will actually be like branches attached to a vine, and they will experience this because of this work of the Holy Spirit and this action of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. So Jesus, for the first time in all of human history, is revealing this aspect of God, that God is actually a community of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So not only is today Memorial Day weekend, all of that, but also it is Trinity Sunday. And typically in the church, when we celebrate Trinity Sunday, there's some kind of talk about doctrines and, and conceptions and things about the Trinity. Um, most often, we focus on misconceptions of the Trinity, some of which are the modes model of the Trinity. Uh, oftentimes, the Trinity is talked about as like an egg. So there's the shell, and there's the white, and there's the yolk, and there's the Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Spirit, and there's these three distif- distinct ways, modes, that God can take on. Another way of talking about the Trinity is that it's kind of like water and the water cycle. You know, there's, there's ice and then there's water and then there's vapor and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are kind of three phases of the same being. Another way of talking about the Trinity is kind of in this structural triangle way. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all three are equally God, yet the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. This kind of structural image way of thinking about the Trinity. And I think looking at those, we can, each, we can see how each of those models falls short, and how really any model of the Trinity would ultimately fall short. Because the Trinity isn't necessarily just a doctrine to grasp and maybe think about. But I would suggest this idea of the Trinity is pointing to the very fabric or nature of the universe, pointing to the same things those scientists see when they look into those telescopes and microscopes. Or rather, the very nature and fabric of the universe is showing us something key an elemental and foundational about the nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, that brings us to an icon by the artist Rublev. Icons are fascinating in that the perspective is reversed. The the perspective is drawn so that the picture is coming out to us because in especially the Orthodox tradition, icons are seen as invitations to us to enter into reflection on God. And in this particular icon, we see three figures. And this icon is called the Trinity. And we see that right away, when you first look at this, if I were to ask you, okay, who's who, you might say, well, yeah, exactly, who's who? They all look the same. They all have that cute little dew, looks like a braid, kind of a poof. They've all got that halo. Uh, They all are pretty similar. And Rublev would say, that's the point. But if you look closer, you notice there's some details, some significant details that are different. So one, the first figure, if we start over at the right, has 
It's supposed to be kind of a, a shimmery, translucent gold kind of overgarment with a blue undergarment. Then we have the middle figure who's wearing a brown undergarment, a blue overrobe, and has this gold band coming down on the shoulder. And then the figure on the left has kind of a greenish, goldish, translucent overgarment, a blue undergarment. They're all three holding staffs. One has a, a house or a building behind. One has a tree. One has a hill. All symbols pointing to Rublev's ideas about the Trinity. But even knowing all those symbols, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell who's who. Anybody have, a, have it all figured out already? <laughs> so what Rublev was a master at is that he is depicting here not just three individual personalities, but he's depicting a type of relationship. So the center figure we see is doing something very, very key with the way the body and the head and the hand is positioned. The central figure, who's dressed in an earthy brown robe, has his head bowed to one while pointing with the fingers to the other, matching exactly what we read in our text this morning that Jesus is telling the disciples about this very reality. Jesus is bowed, is submitted to his Father. He's looking at the Father while pointing to the reality that he's sending the Spirit. And it doesn't stop there. The Father is bowed to the Son, the central figure, and the Spirit, the green-robed, and the Spirit being What's, who's known as the most shy member of the Trinity, has the deepest bow and is also bowing to the Son and the Father. So what if we understood the Trinity more like this, more than just a collection of unique and distinct personalities, but as a dynamic interrelationship of loving persons? Or again, the focus isn't on the personalities, just on the personalities, but on this relationship of mutual love, mutual submission, this community of being that exists between them, as one author has said, in kind of a, a water wheel of love. So maybe in Rublev's rendition, the Trinity is more like our cloud model of the atom than like our styrofoam balls and wire that we made for science class model of the atom. And that God's being is fundamentally dynamic and relational and in movement instead of being static and fixed and solid, which tends to make us think it's something we can grab and hold and name and put in a box. So what if the telescopes and microscopes of these scientists point to, for us as Christians, 
that this community of loving relationship is big enough to hold the entire universe and at the same time small enough to hold the tiniest Higgs boson particle. So what does this matter? It's an interesting science class. But I've shared with you before, and it's my primary conviction, that John Stott's famous quote about what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would add that what comes to our mind when we think about God as Trinity is the most important thing about us. And how we think about the Trinity, static, fixed, unmoving, versus dynamic, relational, interactional, is going to play a very big part in how we enter into and continue our life in God. So with that said, I need three brave people, actually nothing bad will happen to you, to come up and join me here. I've already tagged Pastor Chris has to be one. <laughs> so join Pastor Chris or he'll come find you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Come on all the way up here. All righty. Nice. No coercion here. Okay, come over this way a little bit, all the way down here. All right. So we are going to have one kind of our traditional, usual way of thinking about the Trinity. And that is as Father. Chris, Chris will represent the Father. He has a paintbrush because he created. God is the creator. He made each and every one of us here. He fashioned us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Then we have the Son with his life savers. Because <laughs> Jesus saves, yeah. And we have the Holy Spirit with the Purell. Because the Holy Spirit sanctifies and cleanses us from sin as we walk with God. All right, Trinity, so now we need a human who will be played by Ethan Twightman. <laughs> and human, I invite you to interact with the Trinity. He goes to the Father, he's created, He's made, fashioned perfectly. He goes to the sun, and he's saved with the lifesaver. <laughs> and he goes to the spirit, <laughs> who cleanses him and makes him smell like Purell. Yeah, all over. <laughs> all right. Now I would invite my other volunteers, who you know who you are, And to come up here, come more toward the center here, more toward the center. And I want you to show us what a relational, connectional trinity, closer, get closer, get closer, <laughs> might look like. Together, united, and now human, how would you interact with this type of trinity? Exactly. 
So we have on the one hand, as Pastor Chris has been talking about, we can have a linear transactional relationship with the Trinity. We can think of them as having each unique things to give us. But I think what Jesus is inviting us to and what this text points to is that there's something more. There's something in addition. There is this possibility of being immersed, enfolded, even participating in the life that is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, being enveloped in that love, in that mutual submission, in that community. And that is what we're invited to when we're baptized, every morning when we wake up, every day we come to worship. Thank you, volunteers. So, Pastor Ray Anderson told a story from this very place several years ago, imagining what happened next after this John 16 moment. Jesus has already described to his disciples what's going to happen next. The son is going to go home to the house of the father, where the father and the spirit dwell together. And Ray imagined, what, what would this reunion be like? What would happen? Who would speak first? So Jesus is running home to the Father's house, and he's knocking on the door, and they, the Father and the Spirit fling the door open, and they see the Son. Who says the first word? The Father looks at the Son and says, Son, it, I'm so glad you're home. And the son looks at the father and says, Father, it is so good to be home. And the father looks at the son and says, well, wait, but wait a minute. You, you look a little different. Your clothes have changed. And the son says, yeah, you're right, father. I am now clothed in humanity. In fact, I brought some people with me. I've got Adam and Eve. I've got John, I've got Drew, I've got Kirsty, I've got Chris, I've got the whole Woodbury family with me, I've got Betty, can they all come in too? And the father says, absolutely, welcome home. And that is the kind of life we've been invited into, to live in the midst of that loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>